Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode. Beatrice, welcome to the podcast. Hello, well, thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me. My pleasure. I'm really excited about this conversation. You're the first creator, artist, designer to join us for a conversation, and I think it'll add a fantastic point of view. And you are the kind of the driving force and the creator behind the Dada platform and the project, and it's all connected to the, the crypto art and NFT space. Maybe we start off just talking about how you got there and what attracted you to these ideas in the first place. That is in, in itself is, is a visual conversation platform. You know? it's, a, it's a platform where you make a drawing and anyone around the world can reply with another drawing and anyone else can do, reply with another drawing. And so we create these visual conversations and they have a narrative that move forward, right? You're listening, you're dialogue, having really a dialogue, but it's visual. So data, we launched it really in 2015. And by the time we got into blockchain in 2017, we had already over 150,000 members of the community and uh, about 80,000 drawings made on the platform. Back then, we were trying to figure out how to make the community sustainable without destroying what made it so creative and so beautiful because nobody there was making art because they wanted to sell. Everybody was just connecting to other people. It was just really a, an act of intrinsic you know, motivation. So you, we knew instinctively that if we say back then it was like advertising or you know that kind of revenue model, subscription models, all of that will have dumper this creativity. So in early 2017, I started reading about this decentralized applications and it really sounded like from another world, like really hard to understand. But even though I was an entrepreneur for 20 years, I always been a social anarchist in my soul. So I saw the opportunity to jump into this decentralization. And okay, so we, sorry to interrupt, but I, you've said a bunch of stuff that's awesome that I want to double click on. So first off, what is a social anarchist? A social anarchist is not a libertarian, which is more like the ethos of blockchain now. It's, you know, you believe in autonomy. It's very important to have, to respect the singularity of people, to be autonomous, to have that freedom. But that doesn't discount what you can add to the community. So it's more like, you know, everyone has the the right to hone their skills, to develop their talents, to do as they want at their own time, self-agency and self-engagement. But you put all that value that you have created in pro of the community. So you create this trust between people, which we all have, right? Like family and friends. You create these connections and it's more like you are autonomous and then there is an interdependence that happens between people and with the system. As opposed to be completely independent, right, from everybody else and from the system, which is what libertarianism tends to be. And so it's a more balanced 
approach to decentralization and it's not centralized, right? It's not a government or a committee deciding for you. But we don't have either. Like the problem, I think, with current markets, for instance, is that there is not such a thing as a meritocracy either, right? And obviously, there is not uh, the same opportunities for everyone. So social anarchism, to me, is the, the closest to a more fair, which is not the same to say as equal, but a, a more fair kind of uh, system. That's um, a really interesting framing. I've been thinking about the decentralized world as like capitalist collectivism, which is you have a property rights and an economic system that is encoded in software rather than encoded in the law has some interaction with the law, but not a ton yet. And so you've built into the fabric of your interactions this really hyper-capitalist property rights enforcement system, but on top of it are building very collectivist ideas. You're building the DAOs, the decentralized autonomous organizations of today, appear very similar to me to the idea of like these collectivist communes in the 70s and the early transformation of an unfortunate transformation of the USSR where you have the ideology of if they have a, a collective incentive set and collective goal because of the good nature of the human soul, they'll come together to achieve this. I feel like it's the first time we've had both in that you've got this, I guess, what you call social and for me feels collectivist tendency of people to congeal together because they believe, but then underneath you also have this really structured program. So it's it's like anarchy maybe away from the traditional power structures, but into this more decentralized power structure. Well, it's, it's super interesting because, I mean, there is a couple of things there. For example, DAOs, I mean, they sound good on paper, but they really are not working in that way as you're describing them because what they're producing is basically plutocracies and extreme concentration of power in a few. And, you know, that you can say the same for any, really, any token, any cryptocurrency, any so-called governance tokens they all have the same mechanism the, the same thinking behind and so they produce the same thing which is concentration of power and money on the top on a few so i think that's one of the problems that we're seeing on the blockchain that there is a lot of confusion i think in what decentralization is we haven't figured it out we're still you know there's so much experimentation and everyone is doing their own thing but there also there is a lot of bringing the conventional thinking and the conventional ideologies into this new technology. So the best way I can describe it is you know, we have this amazing new technology, which is blockchain, that has embedded the social layer and also the economic layer. And on top of that, you can add the governance of the three layers, right? And so the technology is incredibly innovative, yet we're bringing the same exact social structures, especially from Web2, all the social media, which we know that doesn't work, which we know that is extremely toxic, that the incentives are all wrong. And then we're bringing that into these DAOs, these systems, these token economics. And then the economics are the market. It's rare to find anything that is not market-driven. So you have the same economics, the same social structures, and people expect to have different results than what we have in society right now. And so what you're basically doing is making more efficient what 
already doesn't work. So we're going to have even more extreme inequality faster, which we already see in, for example, the crypto art space. And we're going to have more concentration of power in a few faster because it's more efficient. And so I really think that what we need is people thinking different. I mean, we can take all the risks that we can. We don't have to rush, but we have to really think things through instead of just putting out tokens, making a bunch of money and replicating the same system over and over and over and, and calling that innovation because the innovation is in the technology, but not in actually the use case. There's nothing really innovative in the way we're using finance, for instance. And I understand that you may see NFT as a collateral and, and true, it wasn't possible before, but it's as true as digital art being allowed for the first time to have value, right? To have a market that that wasn't possible before. But that is not the same as the actual economics of the art market that we're leaving behind or what we're supposed to leave behind that we're doing anything different today. It's exactly the same and it's exactly the same with finance. And the people who are benefiting are the same people who are benefiting in the legacy uh, system. And so I think that that's the kind of thing that we really have to look deeper and I'm happy to, to go deeper into, into that because yeah, it's fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah, I think this is a, a, a very meaty topic and hard. And there's a lot to say about human nature and hierarchies and distribution outcomes and equity that I think are really difficult questions that are really being kind of litigated in, in real time and are hard to figure out. Going back to the data project before it even touched the crypto ecosystem, can you talk a little bit about just specifically like how people do the storytelling with each other, like how they interact and how you've built up that very large community of creatives? Yes. So the idea started thinking about how a, a social network would look like for artists. Right? Like if you had a Facebook that was made by artists, what would that look like? And so the one thing is that first it had to be creative. There has to be some kind of creative collaboration. And, and the second was then you have to be able to express yourself visually. And so if, if the question was let's collaborate on one canvas, that would have brought a different outcome. But because the idea was really how do you have conversations, we needed to figure out a, a way for the narrative to move forward. So what we did was to create an infrastructure in which you made one drawing with our tools, everybody uses the same tools, and then somebody can add to it. And because you can do that conversations that are 100 joints, 200 joints, and they branch out, then you have really a collective conversation that some of them are going on for years. And so that is in itself an, a new way of communicating. So it is natural for visual artists to do it. They get it right away. And it really, I don't know, it's like, almost like speaking through poetry. It's like just a different way of communicating when you don't have the words, when you don't, when you can't be that specific. And it's sort of like a stream of consciousness. You find that you can't really calculate it. Most people are just naked there. And because people are very vulnerable and are putting themselves out there, then a different kind of connection happens. And so if I make a drawing and you reply to me, or let's say you make a drawing and, and I come and reply to you and you can see that I'm talking to you, that Ben maybe, you know, 
three hours making a drawing for you, it really feels like you're being listened and feels like a gift. So let me try to ask a question in a slightly abstract way, because I'm really interested to <laughs> yeah, know yeah. the answer. If you look at these conversations that have lasted for years, that branch out, that become broad and, and open and surprising, what do they say to you? What are some of the things that these narratives and mutual artworks, what have they said to you that you found surprising or novel? I mean, you've essentially invented a language, right? Mm -hmm. It has a tradition for sure, but it's usually two or three people drawing parts of a thing rather than hundreds. What have you found these conversations to say about people, about human nature? You know, you had things like the exquisite corpse, these games that you will play with your friends. and But this is like people all over the world that they don't know each other, right? Like you haven't, you haven't seen in your life or you have never interacted with. And so that is what it becomes really, really interesting. Somebody in Mexico will develop really strong bonds with somebody in China just by drawing. And so when you see conversations, conversations can be anything, right? Like they're very, very free. Some of them are more humorous so are more involved, some are, you know, in aesthetics, some are completely silly. It doesn't matter, but when you have the interaction with somebody, what happens is that if you see somebody that is continuously having these conversations, you get to know them. You feel that you know them in a very deep level. And again, it's, it might be because you don't have all the facades that we put ourselves out there. All of that is gone. So you're really seeing the person connecting in a deep level. And then if you see the whole thing, which is, I think, what you're asking me, it's like once you see the whole thing over the years, you sort of get a sense of a diary of people and a diary of an entire community. You see when people are depressed because you see it on the drawings. Sometimes it's not literal. Sometimes it's just by the colors. And then you see how they get out of that or when they fall in love. You're part of that. And it might be somebody that I'm not necessarily talking, but I see their drawings every day and I just am part of that, that person's life. What I think was more surprising for us, a communication, a new, a new way of communicating and a new way of making art, collaborative, but what emerged was a lot more deeper and we didn't expect that. So the most surprising thing was to, to really feel it, to feel this connection with people that otherwise you would never, ever had. I mean, all kinds of people, all kinds of ages, all kinds of socioeconomic levels, and you connect in an incredible sort of pure way. And that is yeah. really very surprising. I mean, that sounds fantastic. So to juxtapose that, the mechanical grind of the software network meant to create digital scarcity and digital objects and NFTs, right? And so simultaneously to that, we, we developed this chassis for the internet of money and the internet of value. Could you talk about how you take something that is so beautiful and very human and then intersect it with an NFT economy? And maybe if you can touch on the type of work that you've done with the Tate and the type of money and social dividend experiments that you've tried with the Invisible Economy Project. How do you weave together this very sort of intuitive human experience with these attributes that are much more quantitative and market-driven? How do you think about it? Yeah, so that, that was the big question, right? Well, in the beginning, in 2017, I completely fall in love with blockchain and Ethereum in particular. 
I went to the, the Serial Summit, the first one, uh, in I think it was May 2017. And it was a small event. There were about 500 people. But everyone was talking about banking the unbanked and giving more transparency to, to you know, the, the fashion industry and the energy industry. And you know, things like felt very you know, idealistic at the time, but also possible with this technology. And, and so I fell in love with that. And it, it took us like just one day, basically, to this. After the Ethereum Summit, I was like, okay, we're going into this direction. And when head on on blockchain. Around that time, in June, CryptoPunks launched the project on Ethereum. And we talked to them. We asked them for the smart contracts. We used the smart contracts, changed it for what we needed, and launched our first collection in October 2017. At that time, it felt like anything was really possible because, as you said, it, it was the internet of value, right? It was about value and how we could redefine what value was and token economies in which we could completely redesign from scratch how these structures and the dynamics of these economics could play it out, right? So, and, and the incentives. And so the big question for us was, how can we add money, the variable money, into this beautiful thing that we had, right, into this community? And so I felt really strongly that token economics was the, the way to go. And so when we launched the Crips and Weirdos, that's how the first collection was called. That was very early on. That was before the Crypto Kitties. There was no demand. It was like, okay, let's see if somebody feels ownership of these digital assets. And it turned out that people were buying. And yes, they were feeling that there was stairs. But then what happens? And so that was first the whole understanding of what we were doing because we were really innovating at that moment. Like nobody understood really what an NFT was, uh, except that we all knew that there was something big here. But for me, it was really always the token economy that was more important, not the digital scarcity, not the, I mean, all of that was amazing. Like digital scarcity, which for me is not the scarcity what is important, is the uniqueness, but the fact that you could embed the attribution of the artist and the track the ownership. Our contracts were the first ever to encode royalties for artists. So we, we set that precedent really early on. And so all of that was amazing until CryptoKitties came up and we saw an incredible amount of speculation and then it was like, okay, if this happened to us and we sell, you know, $12 million in two weeks as, as CryptoKitties did, how are we going to deal with the fact that some artists are going to get, you know, $100,000 for some image and most artists are not going to get anything because that's how the market functions and how, that's how speculation functions. It's completely arbitrary, right? If it's not arbitrary, it's based on very limited views, like, you know, the the market thinks the early projects, the OG projects like CryptoPunks and our Crips and Weirdos are really valuable because of the provenance, the fact that they were 2017, right? Or Rare or But these projects and the, and the art has a lot more value beyond that. So to me, it was like, okay, so it was difficult. We couldn't answer. We had no idea what we were doing with, when we were about to do the ICO. And so we decided not to do the ICO. And we decided not to sell anything and really focus 
on figuring out the economy. That's all we have been doing for the last three years. In early 2018, consensus invested on, on us. And, you know, we were supposed to be the leaders in the market, but because, you know, we're really being careful about how we handle our community and also what kind of new economies were possible. How could we change uh, how we create art and how we value art? How can we redefine that? That was the, the question back then. That's what we did. So we came out with a completely new a socioeconomic system. I mean, it's a completely new thing because it's based on a very unique platform, a unique community, and using all the tools that are available out there, which really is amazing. I mean, it's, it's basically you can take economics and you can take incentives and behavioral science and you can take blockchain and have all those Legos and just with imagination and, and ethics and passion, just like put all of, all of it together in a new way. Yeah. So I, I wanted to ask you this a little bit earlier, but saved it for now, which is what is token economics and what is it that you've put together that, that you think creates the solutions you're looking for? Well, the token economics is basically the token being the coordinator of, of a community, right? So the, the beautiful thing about the blockchain is that you can get rid of the central authority, let's say Facebook, you get rid of that company, and then you put a token, and that token serves as the coordinator right, of this uh, community. So that's pretty simple, I think, to, to think about it. I, I think that it is so much more that it could be, like, Markets are great because they're decentralized, right? And, and I think the brilliance of the markets is in the fact that they really, really take advantage of decentralized knowledge, right? And so it does this with price. Price is the coordinator of this network in which there is supply and demand, and price is the, the coordinator of this. So you can replace price for a token. You can replace a company for a token. You can replace a government for a token. And so when you think about it that, that way, as a coordination tool, money is, is a coordination tool. It's an information network. So you, you can replace or change money or make a new type of money that is better. And so that's what I see in the token economic. And so what we have done is coming up with what we call the invisible economy, that is based on, on one important insight. And this is an insight that it's like, I mean, this is tons of evidence for five decades that at the moment that you replace intrinsic motivations, say our love for, you know, to make art or, or to play music by extrinsic rewards, especially if they're expected, the intrinsic motivations diminish or completely disappear. And that's devastating for anything that requires creativity, like art, innovation. So when we understood that, which we already knew instinctively, right? But now we had all the evidence and that's what our paper is about. It's about giving all the evidence and the arguments. Then our hypothesis was, well, in order to preserve the intrinsic motivations of people and in order to uh, preserve the intangible values 
the economy needs to be invisible. And that is, we need to radically separate the market from the art making, from the relationships that are created in, in the community and from the trust that is built in the community, separate that completely. And we come to a point that we released, we presented the paper last year at the Radical Exchange Conference and then had no idea what to do after that. It's okay, so how do you do this? Because we cannot raise money and then hire people because it goes against the invisible economy. So we were like, oh, well, let's just leave it. Let's just go into the details of what this is by leaving it. And that is what we did. So we, and people who have not, were not part of data or not part of data, but they're part of the invisible economy. We do sessions every week. I mean, we have hours and hours and hours of sessions every week since the last nine months. And you know, more than a hundred people contributing by intrinsic rewards, intrinsic motivations, because this is stimulating and innovative and, and it feels really good to be doing something so new. So we basically were able to create an entire new system without any money involved, without any quid pro quo. Nobody had you know, any obligation from anyone. And what I can tell you now is that after having been you know, an, a CEO and an entrepreneur for 20 years, there is no way we could have done as much as we've done in the last nine months in the conventional structure. And I can tell you that it's like we don't have agendas, we don't have deadlines, we don't have milestones, we don't have KPIs, none of it. It's a completely different process and we're trying to make sense now we work with MetaGov, you know, meet with them every week, trying to understand, to make a model out of what we're already doing that is working. Because we don't, you know, it's so new that you don't necessarily know how to, what is it that is working, but it is working. So, so the last thing that I would say is that we were waiting to launch the invisible economy with the token, which is invisible. You can only earn it. We're not selling art. I mean, it's not, there's no commodification of art at all. It's a whole different thing. And we were not planning to sell, but with this, the whole NFT hype, it turned out that a month ago, someone found somewhere and buried in our, in our website, a link, our own gallery of the Crips and Widows, and went into the time back machine, looked at how the site looked in, in, in 2017, figured out a way of interacting, buying the uh, Crips and Widows on a backdoor kind of way and put it on Twitter and then we had hundreds of people buying these old NFTs right from the beginning and for us it was like oh my god well, what do we do now it's like you know so all of a sudden a bunch of money that goes in, into the contracts and, and a lot of that goes straight to some artists that may I don't know $200 a month, right? And then they're getting, you know, $40,000 on a windfall. And so so we basically got the worst that, remember what I told you, what are we going to do if that happened? Basically happened last month and we were completely prepared in the sense that our, the artists, they didn't become more competitive or more entitled or anything. They started drawing more and you know having having that security now gave them just peace of mind but they were doubled down on the invisible economy and from now on because we're going to sell the remainder we had to like pause the contract so that people wouldn't buy them all they still have like six thousand hundred percent goes to a fund and then it's distributed among the entire community not just the the artists that were part of that particular collection because there's so so many people involved in everything that we do it's really a collective effort so 
in, in a way, it's like you connect to the market because, and especially Ethereum, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing you know, source of, of wealth and store value. But you connect to the market in a way that now we can allow money to come in doesn't matter how it really can come in and then we have the necessary protections and the necessary ways of not measuring contribution but representing contribution that is in that is intangible and that is, that is intrinsic in order to reward the people who are contributing everybody in many different ways not just because you sold an artwork you maybe you didn't sell anything but that doesn't mean that you didn't put a lot of value and so we are deciding how that gets distributed as a community, not the market. And that is really, really important. So it has been an amazing journey, not easy. But now I think we are in the good place in which you can see that it's working. It's not uh, a utopia anymore. Sure. There's um, a ton of interesting points that you've made. And if I can pull a bit of it together, you know, the a lot of art is a hit driven business and a hit driven business in a, in a very socially driven way. So when you're making maybe some giant blockbuster for, uh, in a, for as a movie or for Netflix, and you're doing it at a scale of a population that might be quantitatively based and sort of if it's a hit or not is somewhat in your control. But if you start going to more narrow communities and more narrow groups of people, narrow, not in a bad sense, but in a sense of just being much more targeted about the types of things that people love, making a hit, long tail probability event. You don't know who it's going to be or why. It's because this week people like dogs and next week people like cats and this week people like things that are new and next week people like things that are old and it's sort of out of your control and the best thing you can do is just show up. And so one of the sharp spikes of capital markets activity that we've seen in the in the NFT space have asymmetrically rewarded certain parts of the community and not others for fairly idiosyncratic reasons. And so you've created a structure that allows the community to work together and then kind of use that engine of hits that may be interesting to some, but not others, or may be wildly popular, but then are able to feed the entire community off of that and then have that be a participatory process for how the value is distributed. Is is that a... Yeah, no, that, that's great. Is that a fair way to think about it? Yeah, that, that's great. I, I will just say a couple of things there. Like the, uh, the the main issue with the hits that you mentioned is, is really the power law distribution, right? Like we really have star systems in which the, the only outcome of a star system of a winner take all, all market will be a few winners and, and a bunch of losers. That now the, the thing is that anyone could be that winner. And if you know somebody's gonna be talented enough and hardworking enough to be the winner, but any event in life that could have happened could have put somebody else on their place. And that is where you know, there's tons of research that this hits these people who get to the top are not always the most talented, not always the most hardworking, but almost always the most lucky. And so the element of luck, because of how it works, because of the power law distribution. So you can make systems in which the distribution is not such that you can have more of a, a bell curve as a distribution, right? That it doesn't have to be a power law distribution. So that's a first start. Like, you know, if you don't have a leaderboard of top selling 
people and top collectors and things like that, you start like minimizing that effect instead of double down on it. But I think one one thing that you said is important because some people may think that if you have a few artists who are a hit and an entire community, then the conclusion they, they make is, okay, so these artists are subsidizing the entire community. That is not true, really, because, again, it's completely arbitrary. The market is going to like whatever they're going to like. They're going to think that something is valuable for whatever reasons, as you said, and that can change. So it's recognizing that the value is not necessarily in one thing that might be the hype of the day or or in one person, that it is really a collaborative effort. And so for us, it's more artists should be able to make art and, you know, everyone, for all I care, everyone that is part of humanity should, you know, make whatever they want to make without any pressure to produce. And so that's when you get tricky because we, you know, we have a baseline of that we started calling it basic income, but it's not really a basic income. It's more like a social dividend of sorts, but you need that baseline, right, a minimum to be able to, to really be free and autonomous in what you want to do, right? To not have any strings attached. But once you have that, and that can come from different points, and once you have that, then it's about a collective value creations. So if you think about it, the economics are more fair in, in that sense, because we know that there is no such a thing as meritocracy because of these star systems. So it's a way of subverting that and yet recognizing that there is their value flows coming from the market. It would be uh, silly for us, for instance, having been in Ethereum for so long, not to recognize that Ethereum is a, it's an incredible way of creating wealth, right? But how you do it and what impact that has matters. And so that is what we put our... It's interesting. I mean, there's definitely, there's lots of analogs, right? It's, uh, this is certainly new ground, but there are the subcultures of, of Hollywood and how to enter Hollywood. And then there are the subcultures of Silicon Valley and the fact that the 20 year old that might be doing their internship in your company or in your venture fund next year ends up inventing Ethereum or Apple or Facebook. And so, you know, they're just the social norms of how people relate are really flexible and we have comparisons to that in other places. And so a lot of what you say makes sense to me. What would you say, how would you rescue the current environment of NFTs where so much of creators today that are targeting, whether it's you know super rare or foundation or nifty gateway or whatever it is what what is your advice to this community of creators that's that's really in a manner of speaking in a gold rush in this very competitive way which i think is new for them like i i don't know if it's been so stark and so transparent in the past, how much, you know, one person's making 70 million bucks off of their work and another person can't pay gas fees. Like, I don't think it's ever been so transparent how these distributive outcomes work. What would you tell the the creators that are engaging in these races and marketing exercises? And how can we get to the future of art that, that you see? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. I mean, it's, it's hard because there is a mindset shift that needs to happen, right? So we were now seeing either people who think that this is the most amazing thing that had happened to artists because now artists can actually capitalize on basically, if you think about it, 
It's like getting a, a piece of the financial pie. It is what it is because it, the crypto art is very close aligned with DeFi with all this market speculation and stuff and store of value and all of that. So it's as if some group of people feel that that, that is fair, that now artists can get a piece of that pie because we know that uh, you know, most, most wealth is created by capital gains, right? Okay, that's one part. The other part is a skeptical at best or really against everything that sounds NFT because of the speculation and the disregard of the art and they look at the art as just as an asset and the entitlement of uh, these investors and the harassment and feeling commoditized themselves and so on. And then in the middle, you have the fact that it is true that it's already very, very highly concentrated. As you said, it's obvious for everyone and there is no question about it. And so it's hard for those of us who are actually using the technology to create something different. And, you know, we're not the only ones. And that's why we attract so many people to work with us, actually, because there's so many people who came to blockchain because of that. And now they're not getting it anywhere because it just looks so much like the old world. So what I will say is it's still early. I come, I, you know, I don't have a lot of faith, you know, in that the crypto art uh, ecosystem is going to get any better with foundation and super rare and, and nifty gateway i mean it's just gonna get worse and worse and worse but the truth is that we're still very early and this is the time in which i think artists can come and not to sell i mean of of course if people can sell those who be able to sell they should we onboard people to crypto art all the time especially in latin america because it's harder for them but the real opportunity is to use the technology, the tools, and develop them, to work with technologists and really develop the tools that artists can envision, that can really give them the autonomy that we're, that we're looking for, the new ways of interacting, the new ways of creating, the new ways of creating value and understanding value. All of that can be completely redesigned. And, and artists are, you know, to like the one thing that we say that the token engineering community doesn't have is that we have a lot of imagination and, and we have a complete disregard for conventions. So you can really imagine new ways and the ecosystem is is just there open and just waiting for anyone to just like come and do interesting things so if you ask me specifically about crypto art i'm not very hopeful yet i onboard people because it, it is a new way of of making a living especially for digital artists that didn't exist before. But the opportunity, the, the beauty of this technology, I think, of this ecosystem is in the long term, not in onboarding people and making it easy for them to use and to sell, let's say, an NFT, but to understand the technology deeply. That's what will give artists the power because then they can, as we're doing, design their own systems. And, and I think that's extremely powerful. So yeah, we're living in these two realities. Absolutely. I mean, that's a that's a very powerful place to land this conversation. So so thank you for that. If our listeners want to learn more, where should they go? Well, we have you know, we have Twitter Power Data, and we have a Medium blog where you can you can read the Invisible Economy white paper there. And we also have a YouTube channel in which we. Every, every session that we have, and, you know, it can last usually an hour and a half, two hours, sometimes three hours of really going deep into all these, you know, things that we discussed today. We, we put everything online. 
uh, unedited. So anyone who is interested in, in themes like governance, value flows, contribution metrics, VR, the future of VR, the future of AI, like all of those things, you can you can find data on, on YouTube and, and just like look at them. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining today. Oh, thank you so much. It was great. Thank, thanks a lot. I really, I really enjoyed uh, having this conversation with you. My pleasure. Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the Fintech Blueprint. For more technical deep dives into all things fintech and decentralized finance, check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>